NASM's new subscription service, NASM Connected, is the best value in fitness. When you sign up, you'll get access to everything you'll need to expand your career, master new disciplines, and stay up to date with your certification in one great package. Gain instant access to over 350 online fitness courses available anywhere, anytime, on any device. Earn CEUs for dozens of approved providers. Plus, unlock articles, webinars, videos, and podcasts from the biggest names in fitness. Don't wait. Sign up today and unlock the best content in fitness at the best price. Get connected at nasm.org slash connected or call 1-800-460-6276. You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie. Thank you so much for being here. And a special thank you and shout out. I just want to say that when you listen to these podcasts, it's an opportunity to listen to uh, oftentimes interviews with people who are subject matter experts, who are professionals in their section, in their field, in their sector. And it's an opportunity to learn from somebody. And that's why I love the show, because I get to learn from somebody every single time I do one of these. And time after time, interviewing people, talking to people, meeting people, discussing content and concepts about fitness, or about how other things can apply to our fitness protocols. And so this is gonna be one of those examples. And uh, I'm excited today because today I'm gonna to be speaking with somebody about positive psychology. And throughout the history of psychology, um, the study has not been on the positive aspects of it. It's been on the pathology of it and what's wrong with it or what's wrong with you. And how can we get out of that funk? But I don't think we can really figure out how to get out of that unless we know how to get into a better place positively. And so positive psychology, I believe in the fitness industry is something not necessarily that we're doing as a, as a therapeutic approach, but understanding better how people move towards goals in a positive way, how to help to shift mindset is very important. So today I have a special guest. Uh, her name is Darlene Marshall and Darlene is here with us because we were connected by a friend named David Van Daff who has been with NASM for many, many years. We've known David for a long time at NASM. He's an amazing person. It's always great to hear from him and put us together and I actually was a guest on Darlene's podcast called Better Than Fine. And so how better to reciprocate that than to have her come onto the NASM CPT podcast, Darlene Marshall, hi. Hi, how are you? <laughs> hey, I am doing well, thank you. Can you please tell me, tell us a little bit about you, your history, your background, and what is positive psychology? I uh, absolutely I would love to and I can weave together some of those strains of thought and you set up the question of like what is positive psychology extraordinarily well uh, traditional psychology looks at kind of through the western medical and scientific lens like what's wrong what's wrong with people <laughs> right like therapy and along the way as the uh, psychological field evolved the question of what's right with people started coming up. What is a good life? What is a meaningful life? What is flourishing? And it was kicked off by Abraham Maslow looking at this concept of self-actualization and what does it mean to, to fulfill uh, your potential as a human being? Mm -hmm. And along the way, uh, Martin Seligman in the 90s, who I think yeah. we're gonna dive into a bit we today, we're gonna about. talk about Marty. Um, he was president of the American Psychological Association and had the opportunity to address, you know, America's psychologists and said, it's time for positive psychology to step up to the forefront. Um, so that was only 30 years ago. But in that 30 years, we made good use of time. And I think that's why we might see a lot of the themes of positive psychology in fitness, but it hasn't been an overt presence, uh, which is also why I'm really excited to be talking, talking with you and to anybody listening about the concepts of positive psychology 
and how they dovetail so well with what we do as an industry and specifically as personal trainers. Um, How do you know so much about positive psychology then? Oh, let me tell you about that. Um, can, I, can it be story time a little bit? A little time yeah, story? Yeah, story time. So I came to positive psychology like a lot of fitness professionals come to whatever it is, the thing that they specialize and care about. Uh, I wanted it for myself. Yeah. Um, so I was a career changer into the fitness industry 10 years ago, and I had the great fortune to be uh, at a gym that had a fantastic culture of continuing education. And so they had a pretty set track of like, this is how you level up as a trainer. And I blasted through that. I had a fantastic mentor. I know we talked about him when you were on the podcast. I know Mike Granger is going to watch this. So shout out. Um, but of course, I, I did the steps I was told and I got all the certs. And then what's next? So I went into management, as many of us do, and found that it was not a good fit for me. So I mm -hmm. came back to full-time training and then I got my 200 hour. I learned about teaching meditation. And so I was getting all these puzzle pieces, but just not finding the thing for me was this question of what's the difference between the clients who are incredibly successful and open to the experience and the ones who kind of languish and they're, they're in and out and they don't get it. Uh, and as, as these things go at that moment, I had a great personal need. Uh, I had a divorce, the end of a 12 year marriage and a friend, Dylan Coleman, who's also a, a wonderful trainer in his own right, was taking a course online. I, this is Four years ago, I had never taken an online course before, and it was Lori Santos's Coursera course, um, The Science of Happiness. And I- was Coursera, told... by the way, is amazing. Coursera, mm -hmm. there are oh, so mind. many open access educational content courses out there. And Coursera, I've done several things through Coursera. So shout out to them as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and this is a free class. It was the most popular class at Yale. And I was total skeptic, but Dylan is really hard on his science. Like Dylan never goes into anything that's not scientifically valid. So I, you know, I suspended my disbelief. I told myself I'm going to try this thing. And I, I was not in a good place. And eight weeks later, I felt so much better. And I wow. was a converted believer. And that was the first kind of fortuitous thing that led me into positive psychology was this friend going, do this thing. And the second was that the first book on her reading list from that course is Martin Seligman's Flourish. And in the mm -hmm. book, he talks about the masters of applied positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. And he says that every student, the number one criteria is that you feel called to be there. And I still, I get tingles talking about it because I remember reading that chapter and knowing that's where I was going to find my place. And that was that was what I was supposed to do next. Uh, and what it led me to was a lot of concepts around mindset and positive behavior change and what leads us to want to be better and how to get there through evidence-based practice instead of things that otherwise feel kind of self-helpy and woo-woo. And not that those things are bad, but they're not what being an educated and evidence-based personal trainer is about. Well said. Well said. And there's and I think you're right. There's there's a place and there's an experience that you can have with some of the woo-woo, right? Like some of the, the coaching and let's get you amped up. But if you look at that, is that similar to the same thing as a personal trainer who is a coach that's saying, woo-woo, woo-woo, let's go, but doesn't really have the, the tools to provide an evidence-based place to provide somebody that is beyond woo woo, I need somebody as a cheerleader, as opposed to I need somebody who can truly guide me to want to be here. And I think that's something really interesting and that I'm just thinking about is when you get people who are truly interested in something, anything, they tend not to be, let's use the gym, for example. It's hard to be a misanthrope and 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 enjoy exercise, right? Like if you exercise and you're probably somebody who has uh, a good experience with people. And there's something about socialization that has shown to be very important in longevity and positive psychology. Um, exercise has a relationship with that. Now, I don't know if in school, those things are really approached. I'd like to hear more from you about positive psychology and, um, uh, and and fitness and exercise? And is there a correlation 
whether it's through the schoolwork or whether it's through maybe your work that you've done because you came from being a personal trainer into this program. So what does that look like? Just to clarify, you mean like what is the intersection of the education around movement, fitness, the evidence-based practice in well-being? I just want to yeah. make sure I understand your yeah, question. Yeah, I just want to say like if somebody exercises, does that tend to put them in a more positive space? Ah, if so, gotcha. how so? And is that ever discussed within um, school or study? Or is that just something that we go, yeah, I feel better when I work out? Well, there's a great study, and of course, I've got my little cheat sheet of studies, and this isn't one that I got the name Good. of the researcher on. Um, but the study was about this question of, is it that people who exercise are happier, or is mm. it that happy people exercise? And the, the book that I am immediately coming to mind is Kelly McGonigal's Joy of Movement, which is one of my favorite books from 2020. I'm and, listening to it right now. Oh, isn't it magic? The McGonigal twins are two of my favorite people in, in the world yeah. of applied science. Like they're just fantastic. Uh, but before I go off on my fangirl tangent. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so there was a study to, to disprove the notion that, well, happy people just exercise more and to prove the idea that exercise makes you happier in which they took routine exercisers and they parked them for two weeks. And within two weeks, they were depressed, lethargic, more anxious and had lower subjective well-being and were begging the researchers to allow them to exercise. Uh, and in contrast, we have evidence where people who uh, are struggling with sub subclinical depression, so just like got a case of the blues, and in their case, exercise is as effective as uh, medication and, and meditation and have longer time horizons than traditional uh, antidepressant interventions for this, this is subclinical population, right? These are people who mm -hmm. don't have necessarily chemical imbalances, but just something's going on with them. Um, so I know since lockdown started, I've been pushing that evidence-based practice as hard as I possibly can. Um, because I think if people know that 20 minutes of moderate exercise most days is going to build uh, their endocannabinoid receptors, increase their BDNF and, and their neuroplasticity, their resilience, their ability to deal with challenge, well, that's what I feel like we should be really talking about as fitness professionals right now, because there is evidence that, yes, you're going to feel good because you look good or because you did something that you said you would in the goal achievement aspect of it. But there is a neurochemical physiological adaptation that that improves your measurable well-being when you get movement into your life. At a well, and at a moderate intensity, we see these neurochemical changes, but just movement in general, we evolved to move. It's part of our humanity. There's a, there's a great book that just released last week and I've already finished it. It's called Exercised and it's by Daniel Lieberman, who's an anthropologist and he's been studying um, uh, humans for a very long time. And, and it's really about movement and uh, one of the great things about this book is he talks about exercise and the importance of it for humanity. And he's studied the Hadzas and, and many other different uh, groups that have really escaped the modern world for the most part. The, you know, the modern world is basically people coming in and strapping things to them and making them do things and then go live your life and we're just gonna watch and put a camera on you the entire time. Um, we've learned a lot about humans from looking at populations who are unaffected by the, the current existence, the, the social evolution. So we've removed a lot of the social constraints and now we can, can watch Kind of the humans in an element that has kind of remained unchanged for millennia it's fascinating to me and there's very little depression mm -hmm. heart disease cancer that i mean the list goes on and on and and i find it fascinating and though this is happening, there is an allure to what is starting to invade that culture which is what is all this cool stuff that everybody has? What else is out there? And, you know, we'll show them maybe something out there is cool, like a, a movie, a TV, video games. But then do we also be like, mm, but it is also heart disease and cancer and dementia and Alzheimer's and, you know, what? What is that? I just 
interviewed Dr. Darsha Narvez uh, from Notre Dame, who is one of the foremost intersectional experts on the indigenous worldview. Um, and I haven't uh, read Exercise yet. I've read the review so in the Times. Uh, yeah, it's, it's good. But I, I worry that it's still promoting this mm -hmm. idea that exercise is some sort of punishment uh, for people who are not. Oh, not at all. Just so you know, oh, good. Okay. not, like, not I, at all. It doesn't discuss that at all. And really what it talks about is that we're, everybody thinks we're supposed to exercise. And when you talk to the Hadza or the Kalahamari, they have no idea what you're talking about. Just they don't even know what you're saying. Just and then they run for hours on end and they do this and they say, how do you train for these big events? And they don't even know what they're talking about. They don't yeah. even know what the word train or prepare means. It's just something they do. So he's saying as awkward as it is and as beneficial as exercise is, it's not even, it's, a, it's another newer social construct. And so we're trying to balance out kind of our, our evolution as a species with our evolution as a society and they don't blend that well. Nope, and that's exactly what Dr. Darsha's uh, work is on. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this idea of indigenous worldview because it is these constructs that you're describing. And to me, what you're describing is movement as a lifestyle where you don't even mm -hmm. experience it as separate from just what you do. And so much of what we are looking at in positive psychology is not that like, oh, this is some different thing from what everyone's doing. Like in a perfect magical world, what we're looking at is like, okay, the French do food culture really well. And, you know, this other culture does um, mental health really well and takes really good care. And, and you know, Dr. Darsha has a this concept called the evolved nest where indigenous populations are shown to just do child rearing really well. So what if instead of like, ah, oh, you guys are messing this up, mm. we start looking at, okay, this population does this really well. Let's take that and let's use this and, and start bringing the puzzle pieces together of what works and build a lifestyle that the target. And, and the reason my podcast is called better than fine is because so often when we're looking from a deficit based perspective, like the, the, traditional psychological model, it's just about solving for the negatives, right? If I take out all mm -hmm. the negatives, well, yeah. where does that leave you? It leaves you at fine. I'm fine. I did a lot of therapy. I'm fine. Um, but we need to move the target and we can yeah. move the target to something much higher than fine. What does it look like to thrive? And earlier you were saying, and I don't, I apologize for not knowing exactly how you phrase it, but this idea that like, the traditional practitioners in psychology were the therapists looking at deficit resolution. To me, a perfect natural next step for who are the practitioners of the tools of positive psychology are personal trainers because we have the highest number of contact hours. We have direct access to people's lifestyles and mindsets. We're right there yeah. walking with them. And if we can share this information as an industry, we can evolve what it means to be, whether we call it a personal trainer or we call it some kind of coach, that person who can blend lifestyle practice and positive mental framing and carry those skills forward into a new paradigm of lifestyle. I, I, well, let's talk about that because I think we all know that people are coming to personal trainers in order to solve some sort of problem, right? We, we wanna solve a problem or we're fine, but maybe we wanna be better than fine, right? So what, how do I level up? What's my next step? And um, I think sometimes, often times, people come to personal training, um, maybe through obligation, uh, through external motivating factors, like, you know, uh, a, a, a diagnosis and a doctor says, hey, you know, you've been, I'm um, you this, we know that lifestyle changes this and you should probably start exercising or maybe you need to lose weight. Some people that's a really strong motivator. And for some people, um, sticks aren't quite as motivating as carrots, right? So being forced in a direction versus um, being led in a direction. How can positive psychology help us help them? How can it help the fitness professional help the clients and the patrons commit more to themselves in order to reach these goals and shift 
that the whole concept of external and internal motivation and locus of control, how can we, how can we support that shift where people feel more empowered to do it instead of being, I don't know, forced or mandated. That they Cajoled. Need to do. Um, yeah. I hope you're ready for a ride. These are big answers. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, because it. to me, the first is, uh, and, and going through this master's program really changed a lot for me personally and professionally. It really shifted the gears. Um, so at the bottom of all of it, at the foundation to me is a paradigm shift, moving away from uh, purely looking at like, okay, you're not eating right, and you're not moving this way. And, and okay, so we get you to just do the perfect workout. And here's the perfect nutritional protocol. And I, I learned to let go of what I'd been taught early in my career around those constructs and started looking at what is this person like? What do they ultimately want? Which I think is becoming more common, right? The five whys mm -hmm. and what's their underlying motivation and why do they want the change? Um, and focusing more on what was going to grow them into that instead of, okay, you're you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong. Um, so that was a paradigm gear shift to start with. And I, I like to think that I was a relatively positive coach to begin with, but I do remember early in my career being taught that if I could show my consult uh, client that the things that they were missing, like here's the deficits in your FMS and here's yeah. where you're really struggling and your body fat is you know, right at the obese line, that they'd be scared into working with me. And that just no longer aligns with kind of the worldview I'm at. So the, the concepts around uh, the systems called appreciative inquiry, let's look at what you're doing well and what you could be doing, what is your potential? Um, so that was kind of the first big paradigm shift for me. And what I found is that when I tell people about the concepts of well-being and ultimately, like, are you exercising because you feel like you should and because you have to? Or do you really just do you want to build a life that feels good? People tend to resonate with that really strongly, especially now. This idea of I, I want to feel good in my body, in myself, in my day. And how do we incorporate things that build that lifestyle? So that was that's kind of the foundation. And then there are a few really key takeaways from the science of positive psychology that I think can inform that practice in personal trainers specifically. Okay. Um, if we can dive in to those, Let's do uh, it. that's exciting for you. So the first one is one of Seligman's, I told you you're going to talk about Martin Seligman, uh, one of his foundational discoveries very early in his career and what kind of catapulted him to, you know, pocket fame in the psychology world is the concept of learned helplessness. Uh, mm. And if we wind back to his grad school days, he was working in a lab where they were using dogs to run uh, behavioral experiments. And if you put a dog in this box and, and, you know, sorry for the dog lovers, if you put a dog in this box and you'd shocked them a couple of times, if you shocked them enough, they'd give up trying to get away from the unpleasant experience. And it was believed at the time that once they had given up, that was it. And that was a very common belief mm -hmm. in human psychology and the behaviorists at the time. Um, and what Seligman figured out was you could take those dogs and show them how to get away once you introduced the way to get away from the unpleasant experience. And it was this idea that learned helplessness, the desire to give up and to not try, could be untaught. And the reason I think this is so important for career personal trainers, if you are working with people who feel like I've tried everything and it's not working and I've done every diet on the market and you're not going to be able to give me anything different, but my wife told me to be here, right. that person thinks that they can't change. If you can, through an experience, not tell them, because you can't tell anyone anything, right? You got to find a way to get them to feel it in themselves and in their lived experience. Well said. If you can facilitate that, you are going to show that person what reality is capable of being. And that is a life change, in my opinion. And that is what we are capable of doing. And anybody who's done this long enough has felt that moment when you just, that person opens up because they didn't think they could do whatever it was that you very carefully led them through to doing. Um, I realize I'm giving you lots of answer, but it's because I think there's lots of answer here. <laughs> okay, there, good. There's so much more, I'm sure. And let, let's go into, I mean, you talk about a, a segue in a feeder system. Uh, you talked about um, a fixed mindset. And I'll give an example of myself, which is running. I, I hated running, hate. And it was, it was my, whatever I disliked when it came to being active, that one topped my list. And there were a couple reasons. 
Um, one is sometimes it would hurt my knee. Oftentimes it would hurt my ankles. And probably the most important is I was awful at it. <laughs> and, and so there was kind of these, these two physical components that, that hurt. And then there was there kind of another component that hurt as well, which is here I am in, in relatively good shape in certain ways, being smoked by people on the track that I'm like, there's no way that person should be running faster than me. There's no way. <laughs> And so I'm, I'll get upset. And so then instead of that motivating me to do it more and slow down and pace myself, if I were my own trainer in this situation, Darlene, I would be ripping me apart. But because I was myself looking at me, I'm like, ah, eh, just find something else. Just do something else. Um, but it's easy to do. It's easy to go and run. And I needed something that I had easier access to. And so somehow, and I got to be honest, you probably know better than I know, but I started shifting into becoming a runner. And, and, and I, I have a hard time saying I'm a runner right now, but <laughs> I ran 40 miles last month. Uh, I'm, I'm at 40 plus miles this month. And there are several more days left in the month. And I have several more runs planned. Uh, that's not a lot of miles for some people. That is extraordinary for me. If you would have told me two years ago that I would be putting in 40 miles a month, I'd be like on a on a scooter, right? Like, <laughs> what is it? Um, there's something that shifted. And yeah. let's let's talk about that fixed mindset that I am not, I cannot, and and it's not even that I will not, because people want to get outcomes and they know a path to get the outcome, they just don't believe that that path is for them. So therefore the outcome isn't for them. And this isn't specifically about running, but just making this about physical activity. Um, we, we know the, 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 the book and Carol Dweck and growth and fixed mindset. Talk to us about growth mindset and that fixed mindset and how some shifts can take place there. Sure. I'm also going to throw out there, if you suddenly found yourself a runner uh, at the start of you know, COVID world, which was common for a lot of people who before were not runners, um, what you're experiencing is the convenience effect. Convenience is one of the most uh, relevant decision-making factors that we as trainers don't necessarily mm -hmm. consider when we're looking at uh, client choice, right? Here's the right choice instead of the choice that's easy for them to make. And it's very likely that the choice that's easy for them to make is the one that they're going to make. Um, but if we shift gears to talking about Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, a fixed mindset is when you're rigid and strongly identified with whatever the thing is we're talking about that you think can't change. Um, so the joke that I always make in my mindset workshops is uh, I'm loud <laughs> and I'm stubborn uh, because those are two beliefs that I've always been fed about myself. I talk too much, I'm loud and I'm stubborn. But uh, a growth mindset is when you think that your experience, your existence, what you're capable of is malleable. And the big difference in the two is that when you have a fixed mindset and you make a mistake, nope, it failed. This is the person who, you know, to, to keep beating this trope, tries a diet and a weekend, they have a day that they just go whole hog and they're like, nah, that diet doesn't work for me. And so they're not willing to even get back to the table. Whereas someone who's embracing a growth mindset is able to see their mistakes as learning opportunities. And I think we tend to have areas of our life where we're easy with the growth mindset. Um, if there's a hobby that you really love, when you started, you probably weren't very good at it, but you made intentional mistakes, learned from those intentional mistakes, fed it back into the hobby, and then continued to improve. Um, the, I just picked up cross stitch because it's really cold here in New York. Uh, so for the first time in 25 years, I made a friend a little cross stitch yesterday and it's the best stitching I've ever done. But if you looked at the ones that I did as a teenager, they were hideous. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, you know, a growth mindset you're willing to grow, or as mistakes in a fit mi fixed mindset person, you tend to see as there's something wrong with me, or this just isn't for me. 
when you have a fixed mindset. So <laughs> the thing that comes to mind for me is arguing with my parents about COVID stuff where I immediately just get frustrated with them in a way that right. I never would with clients or anyone else uh, because right. they're my parents and those roles are really defined. Um, so the turning of the corner of helping someone embrace a growth mindset uh, involves bringing in all kinds of techniques uh, from motivational interviewing, cognitive behavioral therapy, where you're helping that person see times in their life that they have made mistakes and grown from them. Um, so the, another a great question, and it always comes back to these great questions when we talk about coaching, is when in your life have you been through something similar but did well or learned mm. from it? Because what you're doing in that moment, instead of telling this person, this is what you should think, is helping them to have a self-reflective internal process where they're willing to, to grow. And of course, they have to be willing to come to the table with it. Uh, and I definitely have clients who, as soon as we tiptoe up to the hard stuff for them, they're like, no, nah, this is not what I'm here for. And at that point, I have to trust that the client's drawing boundaries for a reason and be able to work with mm -hmm. them through building trust and patience. So I have a question now. When you work with people, are you working with them primarily as a psychology coach or do you still do any personal training? And if you are doing both, are you are you pitching those two things together? And how do you balance between what that looks like? Ah, thank you. Um, I don't bill myself as a psychology coach uh, because at my core, I am a personal trainer um, that also no. offers coaching. So the way I really view it is my, my personal training clients are the ones that show up and have a fitness outcome that's relatively specific. Um, they want to learn something. They want to change their routine. They want to grow in some way specifically related to their movement because that's what I do as a personal trainer. Whereas my coaching clients, there's all these other lifestyle skill sets. And so I have some clients that do both. And we have an explicit conversation where I say, whenever I finish a consult, I offer training and I offer coaching. This is the difference between the two. Uh, this is the frequency that I work with my training clients. This is the frequency I work with my coaching clients. Do you want one, the other, or both? And so my coaching sessions are separate from my training sessions okay. because I don't want the pressure of a necessary <clears throat> conversation to take away what should be a movement session. And I don't want the movement session and the pressure of like, oh, we have to get the workout in, but we're talking too much, even in my mind, no, right. clients, to yeah. take away from what needs to be addressed uh, from a, an internal reflective process that is coaching. I, I understand that. And, and so I can speak to that just as a massage therapist too, where somebody would come to me and you know their, their shoulder's a little, little off and I'm like, oh, let me, let me work on your shoulder for a minute. But what it can't be is let's do a shoulder session and now we're foregoing that. And I would find that almost too much mixing. And so little quick touches, it's kind of like, you know, if somebody has a question about coaching, they want to ask you, I'm sure we can get that done in a break, right? So same thing if I work on somebody, it's short. Otherwise, I say, hey, let's set up another session where we do maybe 30 minutes and come in and let me just work on you and address this because we have a schedule to keep. We have a plan to do, which is we work out two times a week and I don't want to miss out on that workout. I don't want you to miss out on it either by not being able to move your arm. So maybe I work on you for a moment, but I like to, I like to separate those. Yeah, um, and so and I, I kind of understand where you're coming from. Anybody who's in these multidiscipline practitioners, whether you are you know, a massage therapist and a trainer, a trainer and a coach, a nutritionist and a trainer. It doesn't necessarily matter what the two elements are, that the moment that you're moving out of one scope of practice into another, that you're having an explicit conversation with the client. And ultimately, mm -hmm. I think it comes down to consent of the client, explicit consent, because yeah. they're paying for a service. Um, and if we are shifting the nature of that service, we both, to protect the relationship, need them to say, Yes, this is what I want. Um, and there's certainly right. times that clients get on, you know, right now it's a lot of screens, um, but clients get on yeah. the screen and it's evident with everything going on that what they really need right now is as a coaching session. It's like, okay, we're going to swap our order this week or we're going to split the time today or, or something so that we can continue to maintain the construct of the relationship and what we're here to work on without, you know, 
somebody feeling, uh, I used to have a boss that said a certain kind of way without somebody feeling a certain kind of way about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have, I have some other questions for you. And I think these questions are really geared more towards, uh, a direction that, that people that are listening can, can follow up with and maybe do some exploration on their own. Yeah. And that is who are these people and what are these books? Uh, and, you know, and, and the courses are great, right? But I don't expect many people to be like, oh, let me enroll in UPenn's positive psychology program for my master's degree. Um, and maybe they will, but, um, you know, maybe it's books that, that solidify that. So what are some of these, these books that are helpful? Who are these people that write them and, and what does it mean? Well, I'm going to throw out there that for somebody who doesn't necessarily want a master's degree, but they do want some kind of piece of paper that says like, yes, I did more than read some books. There is also a certificate in applied positive psychology at Penn that is a CAP program is is really excellent. Um, so if you do yeah. want a formal education that isn't a master's degree, like there's a lot there and you also are learning from the experts in the field. Um, the the first big expert in the field that probably a lot of trainers, if you don't already know, you're going to want to know is Angela Duckworth's book called Grit. Yeah. Um, she was a pioneer in this concept of what tenacity can do for us in terms of, you know, the, it, we have a, a fallacy in this country that exceptionalism comes from talent. And she really unpacks why that's not yeah. necessarily accurate, um, but that intention to practice with with built-in feedback loops is how you get better at things. Um, and, and and while it's primarily geared toward education, I think the narrative of it, there's a lot there for us as practitioners. And I remember long before I knew what MAP was, long before I knew it was positive psychology, I read her book. It changed how I thought about training. And then once I got in, I found out she was my statistics professor and I became just a huge gooey nerd. No like, way. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, she's great. She is um, as fantastic as you would hope she is. Um, they make a joke. So in, in to, to take a deficit approach for a second, in bipolar disorder, you know, we have stable depression, right? Mm -hmm. We know, everybody knows what that is. Bipolar is when you're manic and stable and manic and stable, you know, mm -hmm. manic depressed, manic. So they were joking, uh, the Positive Psychology Center, about, well, what would a manic stable look like? And somebody goes, it's Angela. <laughs> and she is, she's always turned up to 11, but in the nicest way possible. Oh, uh, that is a man. Now I've seen her, I believe uh, her TED talk. Great she TED talk. read her book, um, Grit, which I've listened to at least twice. So I'm a huge fan of hers. And some of the reasons that I'm such a huge fan of her is that I'm one of those guys that never did great on the standardized tests. But when I got into grad school, uh, I absolutely crushed it. But why did I crush it? It's because I was learning something I was truly interested in and something that I wanted to truly get better at. And so I think her book, it did some validating for me uh, where it wasn't like, oh, what was your SAT? What was your ACT? What was your GRE? I'm like, I would like to not talk about that. Um, <laughs> what was your GPA? I'll talk about that. I'll, yeah. I'll talk about I'll talk about that because that was that was really good. And the reason that is is that because where you might be in your let's say ability versus where you are in your desire to take something on and to really dig into it and be and win at it, right? Like I wanted to win at my education. I wanted to have that here. I wanted it. I, I was doing it for me. It's not like somebody said, hey, if you go and do this uh, program, then we will pay you more. Uh, in fact, I'm not sure if I'm any wealthier now, <laughs> if I've made any money because of that. I've, I've increased my opportunities. And I think that that will turn into something else, but it's yeah. truly that grit to, to do more and do better that defined my educational process. Yeah. And you're talking about like truly intrinsic motivation and to harken yeah. back to where I kicked off is like, oh, well, I, I stumbled into this the way that all trainers stumble into their specialties because you wanted it. Um, that if we can find a way to help the client see how the hurdles in front of them are not only uh, surmountable, but that the process is going to bring them to a place that they ultimately want to go. And that pot is so sweet. 
for them, yeah. they will climb the mountain. Um, and, and that's, again, one of these takeaways from Grit and Carol Dweck's mindset is that you got to help them really want the outcome and really be repelled by the behavior that is not interesting to them anymore. And the, the personal anecdote that comes to mind for that was I tried for eight years to quit smoking. I moved to New York City. I cut way back on my smoking. This is before I was a trainer. So I was still acting. Um, and I, I stumbled and stumbled and stumbled. I was, I was like, ah, I'm just like, I, I've got a lot of smokers in my family. I'm just like them. And I never wanted to be like them. It wasn't until I was in the process of becoming a personal trainer and one of my instructors mentioned that every time you have a cigarette, you give yourself a mild case of CO2 poisoning. And I have such hmm. a weird technical mind that that idea that I'm undermining my workouts by giving myself CO2 poisoning was what was finally so repugnant that I have not had a cigarette since. Interesting. But it's creating those associations that are equally uh, appealing and repellent, if that makes sense. It does make sense. I think it it makes perfect sense. And we have um, we have things that drive us toward a goal and we have things that drive us away from things. And um, I think there's there's some advantages to not just being forward driven. Um, and there are some advantages of being afraid of certain outcomes. And there are times when carrots are very important and there are times when sticks are important. So I think that's a, that, that's a valid. Let's talk about somebody whose name comes up in every book I've ever read or listened to. And I think that they just talk about it because his name is fun to say, but uh, there's a guy named, do you know what I'm going to say? Holly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I want I want to hear you say it. <laughs> Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. That's what I that's what I yeah, I listen to audiobooks so I just I um, like whatever they say. Uh Cory Mascara whose uh, name of his books escaping me of course and I'm like looking at my bookshelf to be like ah is it here? Um he's a meditation coach uh and and also a positive psychology practitioner he's a mapster. Um he likes to say that it's cheeks send me high. <laughs> and that's how you remember how to say it. Cheeks send me high. I like it. Yeah, so you're talking about flow. Um, yes. Should I launch into what is flow and what flow Yo, states are? Talk about it. Yeah, so flow states. I think it's best if you just consider your own life experience, times that you have felt time <clears throat> slip away and you're performing at your the very edge of your true capabilities. And it feels so good to be right there where all of the stars are aligning, the puzzle pieces are clicking, and you just are nailing it. Uh, and then you come out of that experience and you feel satisfied, maybe even a little tired, and you're just like, yeah, I nailed that thing. Um, that's a flow state. And flow states feel really good. Time starts to slip away. Um, but they're also an opportunity where we're not consciously thinking about what we're doing. We're just integrating new information mm -hmm. in a way that grows us. And then we come out of the flow state uh, and go back to that intentioned practice. Um, I know I can remember experiencing it as a singer and a musician, um, as a, a basketball player. I've got games that, that apparently I played really well. I have no memory of them because I was yeah. so in the emergent moment that they that it just the entire gym just melted away. Um, so I was fortunate enough to have enough performance experiences early in life that flow makes a lot of sense to me. But if we can help clients get into that sweet spot of optimal challenge where they're working, but it feels good to be working because they're growing yeah. and it feels doable. Um, it's not optimal challenge and flow are not quite the same thing, but I think they're very related tangentially. Um, for a lot of similar reasons. I agree with that. I think that, uh, I mean, again, it, it's every single book that I've read on the subject discusses him and, and his work. And I think a lot of it has to do with finding something that you already enjoy and try to get better at it. And I have one of the examples they talk about is, uh, and, and this is in um, Daniel Pink's book, um, uh, Daniel Pink. I know you mentioned oh, it when one? you were on Better Than Fine, and I haven't read it, so of course it's oh, not I can't remember fine. the name of the book right now. Um, but uh, Drive by Dan, yes. Dan Pink, and um, 
anyway, he talks about Wikipedia and Wikipedia, nobody, nobody gets paid for that project, right? Like they're, it's sourced out to subject experts who write this, but Microsoft for years was paying people to do that same thing for their platform. And it's very interesting where you take people who are getting paid and people who are doing things for the sake of doing things and which one of those is going to be successful. And of course, I think if you ask anybody, they'd be like, when you pay somebody, and it wasn't, it wasn't. Wikipedia is one of the biggest content providers, if not the largest in the world, filled with people who donate content and instead of being paid for it. And why they do that is oftentimes, as Dan says, connected to the desire to do something. There's, there, he talked about three things. He talks um, uh, uh, about autonomy, um, motivation, and, and, and I said it last time that way too, mastery and purpose. And so there's an autonomy to it where I'm not on anybody else's payroll. There's uh, a mastery to it where I am a subject matter expert and there's a greater purpose for providing this content. And so when you put those three things together, that's really how you create success in so many people. And that's why I think it's such a, an interesting thing. So when you provide these flow states, these places where people in many instances have already done the research on it and they just revamp it and retool it to provide it to places like Wikipedia, um, it, th there's something special to that. And would we be willing to do things on our own that we don't get paid for. And people do it all the time. People garden, right? They, they um, some people exercise, they don't get paid for that. In fact, I don't think that we would do better by paying people to exercise. So it, it really is about some type of as, um, and there's plenty of back and forth about what's the validity of internal versus external motivation, but let's just assume that validation is there. Somebody is driven to something internally because of a sense of purpose. Yeah. And if you don't have a sense of purpose, then you kind of fall away. And I feel like there's something there for us as fitness professionals to coach so that we can provide people a sense of purpose, but meet them where they are, not say the only way for you to accomplish anything is to get at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity, low to moderate intensity exercise, and 75 minutes of rigorous exercise every week, in addition to two days a week of resistance training, which are the current guidelines for the Department of Health and Human Services. By the way, it's either or for the moderate and rigorous exercise, but also add in those uh, two resistance days. Currently, I exercise none. I exercise at zero minutes. So if what you're gonna do is put 150 minutes and two resistance training workouts on me, that's gonna see, seem so overwhelming that why would I even start a journey of a thousand miles when even the first few steps are difficult? Well, and, and overwhelming from a metabolic perspective, a physiological perspective or psychological perspective, time management perspective, it's not just overwhelming on the body, it's overwhelming on the human. And humans are not meant to have these snap whip adaptations, which everybody experienced at some point in quarter two of last year, where right. all of a sudden the rules were different. And think about how jarring that was for us. Well, the same thing is happening when you take someone who's purely sedentary and suddenly try to force them into the box that we think they should be in. Um, yeah. The Pink's drive model is derived from Ryan and Decci's self-determination theory. Right. So um, autonomy, competence and relatedness. Um, same A word there. But like, do I think I can do it and do I care? And the sub model of theirs is uh, self-concordance theory, which was a major component in in my master's capstone. And self-concordance is about how much does this set of behaviors align with who I am, my lifestyle, what I'm about and what I want. And what it really boiled down to is you can do all the right stuff for all the wrong reasons and yeah. have a have a negative or you know maybe even break even effect on well-being or you can do stuff that maybe isn't the optimal and other people would look at and be like why 
but to you, it aligns with your sense of self and you're great. Mm -hmm. And I always think about this when I look at things around the fitness industry, because if a client really likes any, some kind of movement, right? Like I'm, I don't want to name like target names, but there are certain types of fitness that just don't feel good to me. It doesn't matter because if they feel good to my client, that's what my client should be doing within reason, right? As long as it's not going to hurt them and whatever. But I, I, if they're cardio programming, you know, like I've got my optimal outcomes and I want you doing intervals at this heart rate and whatever, but they really just want to take a dance class in their living room. The dance class is going to feel better for them than whatever I try to force them to do. So why wouldn't I nudge them towards the dance class or nudge them toward the yoga class when I think they should be working on, you know, high intensity intervals instead of mobility, but yoga, like it doesn't, whatever. If that's what they're going to do now, I'm going to meet them where they are and then walk them on a path so that it evolves. Um, Because one of the other big changes in my practice uh, as I started incorporating positive psychology was that the target moved to this concept called upward spirals. I don't think you and I have talked about this before, um, but Barbara Fredrickson is one of the world's leading researchers in positive emotion. And again, I started as a skeptic. I was like, ah, those yellow smiley faces got nothing on me. Uh, But what she found at the foundation of her work was that our negative emotions are cognitively completely different than our positive emotions. Negative emotions narrow us. They um, were meant to help us survive threat Um, or create boundaries to sustain like our, you know, our tribe, our group. Whereas positive emotions are bonding experiences. This, this is the science that's underneath all of these gratitude practices and the positive journaling and all of that is to create a cognitive state where we're open. And it's shown that we're more creative, we're more productive, we're kinder to one another. Um, There's actually studies that show we have less racial bias when we've been primed with a positive emotion. So these are things like humor, awe, um, love. It's a great one, joy. But what Fredrickson's found in a body of research spanning 15 years is that you can have activities that boost you now, and then you're more likely to do another thing that boosts you, another thing that boosts you, and they create a compounding Mm. effect because it feel good. And that compounding effect is called an upward spiral. So this is things like if I meditate, I tend to be in a better mood. And because I'm in a better mood, I'm kinder to my partner. And then I'm calmer, so I'm going to meditate. Especially if it's a loving kindness meditation, you tend to be kinder to others and yourself. Um, And this is all evidence-based. It's not me being woo-woo. But the real important one for us is that when I like my exercise, I'm more likely to continue doing my exercise. Mm -hmm. And if I continue to do my exercise, I'm more likely to eat better. And then I'm more likely to feel good about myself. And then I'm going to compete, repeat those, those things again. So that's the difference. What I found, you know, circling back to where I started, where I was looking for this thing, what's underneath the clients that do well versus the ones that don't. If the clients do well, we, we hit the nail on the head on something that they were internally motivated toward. And it felt good to them to be in this process. And the others, for whatever reason, they resented it. They were repelled by it. We didn't hit the nail on the head for exercise prescription. And so they pushed away at it. They were, they were struggling with the execution of it. Yeah. Um, and, and once I understood those guts, it really changed the mark that now what I'm trying to do is trigger upward spirals in my clients because then we become self-perpetuating. And then the codependence on me this. as the coach starts to melt away because ultimately I think another big thing is, and I know I'm going on, thank you for letting me go on. I uh, love it. Is that I think as an industry, at least when I started in the industry, there was a lot of push toward client retention as a business model. So anything mm-hmm. I could do, cause it's way easier to keep a client than to get a new one. Right. That's right. But in that mindset of withholding to create codependency, I wasn't facilitating this person's growth. And what I have found is that if I can become a conduit for this person's process, they're going to come back hungry for the next, the next thing I can learn, the next thing I can try. What else can we do instead of like, I own the program and you do the program. It's a collaborative right. process of, of co-engagement. Um, and, and again, just a completely different paradigm than where I started. I think that, this is such a valuable conversation to have. Um, and it goes back to, you know, when we meet people where they are and when, when you were talking about, I, I just remember having this conversation with 
as, as a manager um, with trainers and they would say, I don't want to direct them to a class on the off days. And I don't want to direct them to do exercise on their own because if they learn to be self-efficient, then, um, then I won't have a client anymore. And that to me bothered me so much yep. that they decided, as you said, to withhold, whether it's withhold direction or withhold instruction to hold on to a client in the assumption that if they became uh, self-efficient, then they would also stop training with you or me as a, a trainer. And, and first of all, there's such a weakness in that. And it's such a, when you remove empowerment to people and their motivation is to be autonomous, um, right? Their motivation is to be able to have uh, a sense of, of purpose where, you know, I, I need to provide something to them to give them life. And when they go out and they are living that life because I was integral in supporting them in the process of being able to do it on their own, you will never have a greater billboard that will sing your praise, even if they don't train with you anymore. All they will ever do is talk about how you changed their life when really all you did is support them in the process of changing their own life. But we don't do that sometimes because we want to hold on to them with, if I give you the freedom to fly away, then you won't come back. Yeah, very well said. Um, I, you know, spent eight years in a corporate chain environment um, as a trainer, a manager, a mentor, a department head. And there was within the culture of that environment, this expectation of client retention. And you were considered mm -hmm. to be, you know, the best trainers were the ones who had really high um, session count, right? Your sessions per client and really high retention. But on the flip of that, 10 years later, my client number five is still referring me clients. She I works with it. me for a coaching session once a month. And because I allowed that relationship to evolve, in a way that facilitated her, she is a human billboard. She wrote one of my grad school letters um, of recommendation. Amazing. But I, I think that you're right, that if we as an industry, if we don't have as trainers this feeling that, uh, oh God, what if I don't get another one? I need to keep you. I, and I had a trainer ask me two days ago, how do I make this client do X, Y, Z? And I was like, why do we sit down and talk about self-determination <laughs> theory? Because uh, you, don't, you don't make anybody do anything, but you make yourself truly valuable when you become the person that's very transparent of this is what I think is your best call. What do you want to do? Or, I, and I don't know about you, but I also in that same gym environment had a lot of real like cocky trainers who felt like they were on the varsity squad, um, kind of throwing rocks at group fitness. And so when I became a manager, one of the things I encouraged any trainer who was not at a full-time business to do was pick a class that you think you'd be interested in learning and go take that class every week yeah. because you're going to yeah. get to know that group fitness instructor. You're going to develop your skill set. You're going to be curious about something different and you're going to meet people who have an interest in fitness and maybe they've got one or two bases covered, but you don't know what else they don't know. Um, so being willing in psychology, we'd say openness to experience. How close-minded are you? Because you know what you know about fitness yeah. versus all of the things about the human experience related to wellness and well-being that you could be taught if you were willing to be open to it. And, that, and that's also something that full transparency, I struggled with early in my career. I was very much yeah. like, I know fitness. <laughs> no, I don't. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. In February, it was February 11th, 2020. This was a post that I put on Instagram that said, trainers should ne never be fearful of losing clients due to self-efficacy it should be the goal. And I think that that is very true, that Absolutely. we should focus on empowering people and supporting people. And with that said, we are, uh, we must've gotten a flow state because we are 
<laughs> over time at this point. So I just want to express my gratitude uh, to you and what you've been doing and the, the support that you have and now the influence that you have through your podcast and through being on this podcast. So thank you very much. Um, can you share with people your information? Where can they find you if they want to follow you, email you, um, you know, have you coach them? talk them through that process and before sure. we close out. Uh, yeah. Instagram is the best place to find me on social media. It's at Darlene.coach. And I know y'all trainers are out there on the gram. Um, so yeah, at Darlene, L-E-N-E dot coach. Um, you can find me on my podcast. It's called Better Than Fine. It's on Spotify and Apple and all, all of those places. You can check out Rick's episode. Uh, we had a great episode together just a week ago. Uh, and you. if you want to email me, it's Darlene at Darlene.coach. And please use it liberally. I'd love to hear your questions and your thoughts and your takeaways. That's amazing. Darlene, thank you so much. And for those of you who stuck, stuck around with us, I do apologize for not taking questions today, but we were kind of in a zone and in a flow and we didn't get to listener questions. Um, I hope that you can um, take this information and learn more and figure out what's next and uh, take take some of these book recommendations and go ahead and buy those books. And if you have an Audible account, then download those books and listen to them. The opportunity to learn so that we can all figure out in a very positive way how to be better and how to more effectively and efficiently influence those that we work with is incredibly valuable. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. My name is Rick Ritchie. This is the NASM CPT Podcast. <laughs>